Before we look into God's word this morning, let's bow again and ask the Lord to guide us. Lord, we have just uh, sung about the fact that we can have a, a, a deep and abiding faith in you, even in the midst of trials or grief or pain or opposition or ridicule. We can put our hope in you. We can find rest in you. We can know with great assurance that you will never let us go, that you will not abandon us, that you are always near and present. We can put our hope in you because our future has been secured in you through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that those assurances would help us to press on in the present, in this time when things are not yet as they will be. I pray that these truths would be solidified in our minds right now as we look into your word. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we've come this morning to the end of our look at the letter of 1 Peter. I trust that as we've looked at that, um, starting, I can't remember when we started, way back in June, I think, that we've been encouraged in going through this almost 2,000-year-old letter. If we step back and think about, of, the, of this, we, we, we might wonder how a letter that's that old and that ancient can be helpful in our day. How can it be helpful and encouraging to us here today, all these many years later? How could it have any advantage or benefit being so ancient and speaking at a time that's so different from ours? Well, the short answer to that is that 1 Peter, of course, is not just an ordinary letter. 1 Peter is a letter that God took and put in the Bible. He was inspiring his word even as Peter was writing this letter. It's a letter that the living God took and included in what he wanted us to know about himself and what he wanted us to know about how to think about him and how to live in the world that he created. This letter, like the whole Bible, is therefore worthy of all of our attention. It's not only a letter from the Apostle Peter, it's a letter written by Peter, but inspired by God and useful for all of God's people for all of time, including the people of God here at this church today, located in Wetaskiwin, Alberta, on September 22nd, 2019. One of our aims when we study a book like this is to try and figure out what these words meant to the people that originally got this letter sent to them and had it read to them. And if we can start to understand that, then we can understand what makes this letter useful for us and for our church all these many years later. And in the case of this letter, 1 Peter, that is exactly what we've discovered as we've gone through this. Peter is writing to Christians who were living at a time when the unbelieving world was in a full-scale effort to try to intimidate the church, to try to intimidate believers. The setting was obviously a lot different than ours. This was written to people who were living in the Roman Empire. Christianity at the time that they were getting this letter, was relatively new. It was not too many letters, or or not too many years, um, perhaps one generation 
after Christ, the leader of Christianity, had walked on this earth. But the circumstances are actually not so different than the circumstances for Christians in the world today. We live in a time when there is a mass cultural campaign to discredit Christianity. Just in the public conversation, in the, in the public discourse of our day, which happens in our world through, you might just sort of scale down as the threefold influential forces of communication in our day. The threefold influential forces of communication in our day. What are they? The internet, the media, and the entertainment industry. That's probably my way, maybe my way too simplistic attempt at breaking down that's something very complex. All these three are different, yet they all work together as one big force in our culture. It's also, in some ways, speaking, maybe a Trinitarian force, all three working together as one in our culture. And that force, those forces are aligned to trumpet, to project what they like to call progressive values. And the problem is that the progressive values, those, ones that, those things that are world values today, collide head-on with what are sometimes called traditional values, which are essential biblical, essentially biblical values and Christian values. We see it most clearly in some specific areas of our day. Aberrant views of marriage and gender. And even the very basic issue of life itself. And what really sets those particular areas apart is that they're all focused on self. Whether it was the attack on marriage with its mass increase of divorce rates, or whether it was the legalization of abortion at the end of the last century, or the right to determine your own gender in this last decade. Each of those views is focused on individual rights to decide. They're effectively saying, I have the right to decide what's best for me. If it's not getting fulfilled in marriage, if I'm not getting fulfilled, if it's not working according to the way I want it to work, then I'm getting out. And that, of course, led to a mass rise in common-law relationships that we have today. In terms of ending pregnancies, generally speaking, there are exceptions, of course, but in terms of ending pregnancies, it's a matter of personal convenience or inconvenience. The baby is depersonalized as a fetus and therefore easily disposed of. We can be thankful that we're seeing in our present day, actually, an increased pushback on this from Christians, especially down south, where Christians in government are actually pushing against, against this, and some states are actually outlying abortions at certain times in pregnancies. When it comes to gender, the language itself betrays the fascination with self-fulfillment, doesn't it? I have the right to decide my own identity. 
So you can see the collision in values, can't you? Christianity says God is the creator of life and therefore gets to determine the rules that govern his creation. He determines who and when someone is born and when they die. He instituted two genders, two binary genders. He brought man and women together in the first marriage. Humans are the ones who messed up his perfect creation. And so for progressive thinkers to now determine the rules results in chaos, which is exactly what we're seeing today. It's exactly what we've got. But the wonder and glory of God is that even though humans have messed things up, God has not abandoned his creation. In his grace and in his love and in his mercy, he sent his eternal son to this earth as a human, perfect, sinless, God-man, truly God, truly man, in order to rescue a people to himself by dying in the place of sinners. And if sinful humans would confess their sins and put their trust in Jesus, they can be changed, transformed by Jesus from sinners into saints. And they can therefore be enabled to live godly lives according to the rules that God has set out for us. And so the good news about that is even if you were formerly ignorant of God's ways, divorce, abortion, gender confusion, you can be saved. You can be transformed from those, what Peter calls in, some, in one place, futile ways of thinking. And because God initiated that amazing plan and purpose, we now worship not ourselves, but Him. We give glory to Him. We bow to Him. We have an underlying distrust in ourselves and our own abilities to determine faith, to make good decisions, and our own ability to determine how to live. We have a distrust in our own abilities to do that. Rather, we trust God to determine what is best for us. And we know what he determines from the pages of his word. That's where we go to him for guidance. All that to say that our posture as believers always must be one of humility. We happily and joyfully submit ourselves and entrust ourselves to God. Even though we don't know how everything is going to turn out, we know that God does, and God always has our good in mind. We happily and joyfully submit ourselves and entrust ourselves to God. And that's how Peter ends this letter. It's a final word of assurance, a word of encouragement for Christians who might be discouraged by the constant steady drumbeat that they were experiencing, that we experience, insults, being slandered, being treated unjustly, even while they were doing good. He wants them to know, as he closes this letter, that God is still in charge, that God has not abandoned them, that God's purpose and timing is right on schedule. He wants to assure these exiles, that's what he calls them right at the beginning of this letter in chapter 1, verse 1, these exiles living in a hostile world in tumultuous times, that they can keep standing firm in God's grace. 
And that same encouragement holds true for us living in these times when our values are constantly under attack, when we as a church might come under increasing pressure when we try to hold true to biblical values and when you might feel the pressure to conform to the patterns of this world, to the wisdom of this world. Let me read those closing words for us in 1 Peter 1, verse 5, starting at, or 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 6, right to the end. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, I think he's talking there about the church at Rome. Babylon is kind of a code word for the world. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace. To all of you who are in Christ. Isn't it great how this closing section starts? In view of everything that Peter has written, the the reality of suffering, the the call to a, a general demeanor that we ought to have in this world of doing good, even when we're being reviled and insulted because of our convictions, in view of all of that, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He's saying, listen, assume a posture of humility. Humbly place yourself under God. And, and right away, you can see this, that this goes right against the world's wisdom, which says, I'm not going under anybody. I'm in charge. I'll decide. Thank you very much. But for the Christian, there's no better place to be than beneath, than under the mighty hand of God. This is a posture of humble submission. That is for your ultimate good. This picture of the mighty hand of God comes from the Old Testament where often it talks about God as the one who delivered and rescued and led his people from their main oppressor, which was Egypt. Here's just one example out of many examples that we could find. Deuteronomy 26, verses 8 and 9. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Christian brothers and sisters, always remember that you're safe and secure under the mighty hand of God. Just as he saved his people from the Egyptians, just as he brought them through and actually accompanied them through the Red Sea by sending 
sending a hurricane force wind that was going in opposite directions in order to part a sea. So he will bring you through this tumultuous world. You can humble yourself under that same mighty hand of God. Knowing that he is in control, knowing that you can entrust yourself to him. He has his mighty hand stretched out over you to deliver you and to save you, to bring you through. And that first line kind of sets the tone for this whole last section. It sets God in his rightful place and it sets us in our rightful place. He is over, we are under. And God's mighty hand, we have to remember and we have to remind ourselves of, is on your side. He's always acting for you. This is a bit of an intimidating image for those who are not on God's side. You don't want God's mighty hand against you. If you could dig the horses and chariots, the Egyptian horses and chariots out of the sea, they would tell you. You don't want to be on the other side. You, don't, you want him acting for you, and thankfully he is. And with that picture in our minds, we can start seeing exactly how God's mighty hand is working for us, even while the world is against us. What are God's provisions for his people as they live as exiles in this God-opposing, self-exalting world? And we'll look at those provisions first, and then we'll, uh, since God's hand is held out with these provisions, we're going to find out how we ought to respond. But first, what is God doing on your behalf? The first thing to note is that your future is secure. God is working to secure your future. Notice how God is acting for you there in verse 6. He says we should humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Why? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So, just realize, it, it doesn't exactly feel like that right now, but you can know that God is working to secure your future. You can humble yourself under him and know that in God's perfect timing, you, who are humbling yourself now, will be exalted. You see that idea of future reward again down in verse 10. Notice, notice the, the, the timing words here, the chronological words. There are three of them, and I sometimes write out a passage before I go through that, and when I write out a passage like this, I usually draw a little clock around these words. After, there's one. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal, there's another one, grace, will, in the future, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so your life might, might seem like it's a little bit tenuous and tumultuous. Things are kind of wobbly for you right now and unstable, right? Uh, that's a good way to describe our times, even as we look at the world now. You look in our country, you look down south, it, unstable, shaky, confused, chaotic, unpredictable, not really sure what's going to come next. We might even say it's a little bit scary. But Peter describes this life, did you notice there, as a little while. Our life as exiles may seem like it's going on forever, but in terms of eternity, 
It is a little while. And so these days that we live in can be unsettling, but it won't be like that forever. After a while, God will set all things right. Those four verbs there in verse 10, they all basically mean the same thing, that God will settle everything down. It'll all be in a settled condition. It'll be firm, established, strong. A second way God's hand is working for you is that he cares for you. Back up to verse 7. We can humble ourselves under God's mighty hand so that at the proper time, God may exalt us. That's in the future. But what about right now? You say, you've got the future. Future's all good. Excellent. Thank you, God. Um, but I'm a little scared, a little anxious right now. Well, God is working for you now as well, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, present tense. He cares for you. God is intimately concerned for the things that are going on in your life right now. God is a God who is involved in the details of your life. With all this stuff that's going on in the world, we could understandably and easily get anxious. It might seem like God isn't around or that he's just sort of sitting up on his perch and and, and looking down and watching and then one day he's going to come and bring it all to an end. One day he'll act. For now he's just watching. Well, that's not God. That's not our God. He is concerned. He's active right now. In fact, he's active in our church. He's active in your life. When the world is in chaos and you feel like you're just getting sort of just carried along in that confusion, you can know that you have a God who cares for you. He's not just up there looking down from 30,000 feet. He's right down here where you are. God is not an absentee father. God cares for you, his child, intimately. He is concerned about the very details of your life and of all believers together. And so we see that God provides for our future. There in verses 6 and verse 10, God cares for you. Now, the third provision from God that we see here is that God is a God of grace. Cares about our future, cares for you now, and he's a God that provides grace. God is a God of all grace. Down in verse 12 again, Peter says that he wrote this letter to declare that this is the true grace of God. There's one thing that Peter wants these embattled, these besieged, these tormented tormented believers to know. It's that God's grace is resting on them. It's God's grace that has saved you. God's grace is his undeserved favor toward you in Christ. But it's also God's grace that keeps you. God's grace that protects you. God's grace that gives you courage. To live in this world where every value is the opposite of what your values might be if you're living as a believer. We need God's undeserved favor every day, especially when the pressures of this world can overwhelm us, can smother us, can drive us to the brink of sometimes just wanting to give up and just give in to the pressures. At those times, you can be assured that the God of all grace is for you. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. 
So that's what God is doing. You can humble yourself under God's mighty hand. God's hand is on you preparing for your glorious future. God's hand is on you caring for you now. And God's hand is on you being gracious to you as you live in a world that always threatens to overwhelm us. Be reminded that God is living. Be reminded that God's hands are constantly active. His hands are powerful, working hands that will deliver you home into, verse 10, his eternal glory. So, since God has given us these gracious provisions, what does that mean in terms of how we then respond? Well, Peter gives us two last words of advice, two pieces of advice that can only be obeyed because of God's provisions. God does these things for us, so we can now do what this asks us to do. The first there is in verse 7. God, since God will exalt us and since God cares for us, we can then cast all our anxieties onto him. So like I said before, all the pressures of this world, pressures of this life can weigh us down with worry, can weigh us down with fear, can weigh us down with anxieties. When we try to live distinctly Christian lives, it will bring about hostility whether that's unbiblical government policies directed at Christians, whether it's verbal insults from non-Christian co-workers or from unbelieving spouses and family members, as talked about there in chapter 3, or from your schoolmates who will make fun of you. And our natural response to those kinds of hostilities is If we don't fight back, it's to carry that weight by ourselves. When we get anxious, we naturally move into self-care mode. There's all sorts of literature out there now. It's just a plethora of literature on on self-care, caring for yourself. But Peter writes here, for believers, cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. He cares for you. You don't need to try to care for yourself. Because you can cast all your anxieties on him. Peter was a fisherman and he used to cast uh, weighted down nets into the water. That's the picture he uses here. Cast your anxieties on God. Don't go into self-care mode. That's only going to add anxiety onto anxiety. Because you were not made to handle those on your own. Cast that weighted net of your anxieties onto God because he cares for you. Second word of advice is down in verses 8 and 9. There's actually three commands there. Listen to them as I read that again. Chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. It's two. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And here's the third one. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around throughout the world. Listen, the world is a daunting place. It's even more daunting when we find out here that behind all of these hardships, all of these insults, all these attempts to discourage Christians is your adversary, the devil. The one who prowls around like a roaring lion. Satan's, the devil's often depicted as subtle, coming at us when we least expect it. But here he's depicted as one who is loud. A roaring lion, direct attacks. Behind all this suffering as exiles is the devil. On the face of it, this seems like an almost insurmountable obstacle. It's one thing to cast our anxieties on a caring God, but what do we do with this? 
Well, let's be reminded about the devil. Like I said, the devil is ultimately behind our suffering as Christians, Christian exiles. You see there the parallel, all that feels threatening to Christians in the world, everything that's scary, everything that's intimidating. The devil is behind all of that. Three, actually Jesus, three separate times in John, in John 12, John 14, and John 16, he calls Satan the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. But just think about that in terms of being an exile, being an alien, being a temporary resident here where this world is not our home. As a Christian, you are no, no longer of this world. Satan is the ruler of this world, but you are not of this world. This world is not your home, yet for now you live here. So when it comes to the devil's roaring, devil's roar, you can hear it, you can see it, you can feel it, but he can only roar and try to scare you and try to intimidate you and try to terrorize you. That's all he can do. He's good at it, but that's all he's got. He's a defeated foe. He does not rule you. He's the ruler of this world, but he does not rule you. So that's the first thing you need to know. And so what should you do? Be sober-minded. Know what's going on. Be clear-headed about the devil. Realize where he fits in the grand scheme of things. His rule is limited. Let him try to intimidate you. Let him try to prowl around like a crazed animal. But remember John's words in 1 John 4, verse 4, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Be sober-minded. Second, be watchful. Peter had already learned his lesson with the devil through failure. You might remember the scene in the garden just before Jesus was arrested. Jesus told Peter, along with James and John, to watch and pray. Remember that? But they couldn't stay awake. And so Peter turns, or Jesus turns to Peter. He doesn't turn to James and John. He turns directly to Peter and says, Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you might not enter into temptation. It's Mark 14, verse 38. Peter, no doubt, remembered Jesus' words. And now he passes those same words, that same advice, on to believers. Be watchful. Be alert for the devil's attacks. Be alert for the temptations that might come. And finally, verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith. Just being firm in your faith counteracts his roar. Being firm in your faith means that you're rooted in God's word. means that you're rooted in sound doctrine. That's how Jesus fended off the devil's temptations. You remember in the wilderness, the devil knew the Bible, but Jesus knew it better. You can resist the devil by knowing God's promises and by being rooted, being firm in the faith, in the word. Writes the same thing down at the end of verse 12 when he reminds them why he wrote this letter, which was to exhort and declare that this is the true grace of God. This is the truth about God's grace. Our response then, stand firm in it. Stand firm in this true grace. And back to verse 9, the motivation to firmly resist the devil through faith is, end of verse 9, that you are not suffering this intimidation by yourself. Take heart. This same thing is being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. It's great encouragement knowing that there's great fellowship in suffering. 
isn't it? And then you have that great promise in verse 10 that we already looked at, but it's worth being reminded of again. After you have suffered a little while, after Satan has tried to trip you up with his roar, trying to devour you, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Christian, you have been called by God himself. Remember that. Remember that. This battle will not last. Since he has called you, he will bring you. He will bring you safely through this world and to your eternal home. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So just as we close, for closing implications as we sort of put a bow on first peter peter as we went through this we find out that he is not sugarcoating the christian life he doesn't say that this christian life is your best life now he says there will be difficulty there will be hardships there will be trials as christians we will be exposed to the constant poundings to the constant pressures that this world puts on us they're going to be pressing in on us all the time and God has equipped you though to handle those things in his strength so what does he call us to do here number one take refuge in the church suffer together don't let our present sufferings don't let what the world uh, throws at us all the time make you want to retreat and go into your own cluster to isolate yourself that would be deadly Seek the fellowship of the suffering. Told us that back in chapter 4. Serve each other. Love each other. And even the last command here in chapter 5, verse 14, is a word to the church. Greet one another with a kiss of love. That's making the assumption that God's people are together in worship. This was the customary greeting when they worshipped one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love. When times are tough, keep aiming to be together with the saints. Two, long for God's word. The best way to counteract the world, the, the ruler of this world, the world's lies and the world's intimidation is to immerse yourself in what you know to be true, which is the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fails. Grass withers, the flower falls, I think is what it says, right? But the word of the Lord remains forever. The word of the Lord remains forever. Number three, don't ever back down from standing firm on your Christian principles. But always do it with kindness and with respect, with gentleness. You don't counteract intimidation with intimidation. Threats with counter threats. Reviling with reviling. Insults with insults. You counteract hostility with good works. In a gentle and quiet spirit. When you do that, it actually says that you open up the, the, the possibility that some of your adversaries might be saved. That's a worthy goal, isn't it? To do good works, to be kind, to be silent, even though we're tempted somehow to fight back, to rebel, to start a revolution. Keep that in the back of your mind. Some might be saved through your good works. And finally, most importantly, entrust yourself to God. 
by keeping your eyes on Christ. It is Christ who saved you. It is Christ who will keep you. It is Christ who will bring you through. It is Christ who leaves you an example of how to respond in suffering. And it is Jesus who gives you an example of how to entrust yourself to God in unfair circumstances. No one had it more unfair than Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In this great gospel truth, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and that we might live to righteousness, doing right. By his wounds you have been healed. For you, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Father, we thank you. Thank you for giving us this portion of the Bible. We have found this to be so relevant, so practical, so helpful. Especially in this word word that we've just looked at this morning, we surely need some help on how we believers can navigate this world and still hold on to our Christian convictions. We need your guidance. We need your wisdom for how to respond when treated unfairly and unjustly. We need your wisdom and how to relate to unbelievers in this kind of setting. So, Father, we thank you for guiding us to do and directing us to look at your Son, to look to him, to behold Christ. And we thank you that we can discover these truths together as a church, as a community of believers. And so even as we now disperse, Lord, we pray that you would help us to apply these truths as we go out into the world. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father who loved us and who gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may this God comfort your hearts and establish them in every good word and work. Amen.